History Lecture 28, Rabbi Bleiweiss, we um, are rounding out when we last left our heroes and some of our anti-heroes, the King of the North and the King of the South simultaneously in the same battle died in the, bal- in the battle in the Jezreel Valley, Yehoram ben Ahab and Ahaziah Melech Yehuda. Uh, the latter was set up by his mother of all things, Asalia, as she conspired for her own, uh, for, 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 for her own uh, designs. <laughs> Um, to take over the monarchy in the south. Um, Izebel has just been thrown down very famously by Yehu, by, Yehu, by Yehu's eunuchs. And then Yehu, this is new material for today, Yehu then turns as he's been assigned to do by the prophet Yonah, by way of Eliyahu and Elisha. Yonah has told Yehu, your job is to get rid of the house of Ahav. And indeed, he finds 70 of Ahav's sons, um, and he slays all of them. Of the house of, ya- of Ahab then, the only present survivor is Asalia in the south. And that's really a literal statement because her own son was killed at her own, at her own based on due to her own uh, uh, calculations and, and, and uh, conspiracy. Um, <coughs> right. He boasts, excuse me, I should say also, Yehu finds Ahaziah has brothers by way of his mother Asalia, and Yehu kills them too. So literally nobody is left from the house of Ahab except for Asalia. And then he's not quite finished with the task. He starts bragging and, he spread, and the word gets out that Yehu, this ferocious general, um, can outdo anybody, even Ahab himself, in worshiping Baal. I'm worshiping the Baal. That's what Yehu says. Hold on, hold on. Stay with me. Stay with me. He's, he boasted, I can outdo anybody in the worship of the Baal. Are we thinking Sadiq now? Big Sadiq. I can outdo anybody. And of course, the remaining Baal worshippers, and they exist still, are challenged. Oh yeah, you can't outdo me. I can outdo you. I can cut myself over how they do it with the knives and everything. And so he said, okay, we're going to have a showdown. Meet me in the central temple for Baal worshippers. Um, yeah, it sounds like it, but it's, it's a different kind of a story. All right. He, and, and, and every last remnant of Baal worship came to see the ultimate showdown to this temple. He wanted to make sure that he got only those who were really guilty he said, everybody, you know, Mila Shem Eli, who, who serves as him, who, who really worships the Baal? Everybody, deck yourself out in real Avodazara vestments. If you wear special clothes, why does he make sure that they do that? He wants to make sure that he's not about to kill the innocents. And when he assembles them all in a temple, um, he kills every last one of them. And he wasn't, he was lying. You're lying, L'shem Shemayim, which you're allowed to do. Yeah. Remember, the, the Pesach only says, tirchak, you have to distance yourself from a lie, but sometimes a lie, L'shem Shemayim, is called for, and he slays them all, and that effectively brings an end to the worship of the Baal in Klal Yisrael. He turns the temple, as the Pesach tells us, into a latrine, and thus, fittingly, ends the worship of paganism. A latrine is a bathroom. I'm sorry, a loo. There we go. I have to know my, learn my words better. The, uh, Rav Miller points out from this, uh, another proof to his meta-theme that I've been developing here too, because I'm persuaded by it, that um, this shows you that actually there were very few Baal worshippers back in the day. 
There were so few he could fit them all inside a temple, and a temple is not so large. I mean, in an ancient structure, how many could you get? A thousand? Three thousand? Cram them all in? Even so, relative to the tens or hundreds of thousands of, of, of people making up Klal Yisrael, again, he tempted them, he made sure that everybody who wanted to compete, who really worshipped Baal, was present, and then, of course, he had all of his henchmen. Yeah. yeah, I saved the blood and gore for the descriptions. That's for the horror movies. I, I'm more interested in the content. I know, I know. That's, <laughs> That's the good stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Hashem rewards him generously with 28 years as king. And four subsequent generations, he'll be the beginning of the longest dynasty in the north. Uh, so that he plus four of his descendants will, will be the successive kings in the north. Uh, that's that's a that's quite a feat, um, and still, even though Yehu is characterized generally as a tzaddik, he doesn't get. And I made mention of this a while ago. He one thing he doesn't get rid of, and I'm thinking of the north, not the south. The south's problem they never got rid of the bamos, the bamos, right? In the north, what did he never get rid of? Oh yeah, yoy, the eglos, the eglos, one up in Don and one down in in, in base L. And here, I even told you way back, not that long ago, why he doesn't do it. And here, he's really faultless. Why didn't you let people give up the basement? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah, that's another, that's another deficiency. Fair enough. No, good, good. Ask the question in a minute. Why doesn't Yehu get rid of the Eglos that are so obviously, glaringly, out of place, wrong, usser. Why does he get rid of them? Do you remember this? That was it. That's the Gemara in Sanhedrin says this. You remember when Yeravam fooled everybody, he got them all to put their signature, even Achia Hashiloni signed his name on the document certifying the Eglos, and that was passed down from generation to generation. Again, again none of them are alive still to be able to deny it or affirm it. And all Yehu is left with is a document that certifies that Athia said these are okay. It must have been a horasha'a, must have been some kind of a, a, a temporary measure, and, and what, he, he left them. He also, it's true, he never got rid of the guards. Remember the sentries that Yeravam himself had posted all those generations back, preventing the Jews of the north from going south. So that in a sense, this is the northern kingdom, this is the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom is hermet hermetically sealed, at least from the south. No, no transit. Um, so what? If, how do we understand it's Sadiq? How could it Sadiq not do it? He got rid of the Baal, and he's a revolutionary. You remember, though, he was specifically, deliberately assigned with that task. He was not assigned with getting rid of the sentries. Why not? One wonders. That's a good question. I don't have an answer to that, but I will address in general. Status quo is a very, or inertia is a very powerful force. Once you've gotten used to something and once it's become a fixture of the reality for generations, it's very hard to go against it. And by that point, initially maybe the people clamored to get rid of the sentries, but now several, several generations growing up, you had no access to Yerushalayim. The Eglos had become institutionalized. These are, this is where we go. And um, with all of their... They didn't worship the Baal, but there was no movement to go back. And so definitely not, not, not to his credit. It's definitely a deficiency, uh, but he does not remove these guards. You didn't answer my question. Didn't I didn't answer. What was your question, Elon? No, not the one from... Yeah, you didn't comment right? Which... I didn't miss that. No, you are. No, we're, we're about to get to that. Okay. So... Yehu rules for 28 years. His son, Yehoahaz, 
And if, if they don't have identical names, but sometimes the names are so similar, that's also a source of confusion. Yehoachaz sounds a lot like Achaziah. Yehoachaz ben Yehu rules for 17 years. And even though they're not bad, there's certainly nothing like Beis Achav, still the North is, you know, because of these deficiencies, is a problematic entity. And very slowly and gradually, Kaddish Baruch Hu lops off um, actual whole tracts of land. And the empire, the monarchy, starts to visibly shrink as a sign of its decline. And it's an ominous sign because we're going to see uh, that it's not going to end well in the north. Um, very briefly, because these, these are not greatly distinguished rulers, you go down your list if you have your chart in front of you. His son is named Yehoash, not to be confused with Yehoash, who we're about to meet. There are two Yehoashes too. Um, but Yehoash... The son of Yoachaz rules for 16 years. The fourth generation after Yehu is, is another fellow named Yeravam. You want to peek at this? Yeah. Is another fellow by the name of Yeravam, Yeravam II. And actually, by Yeravam II, there are a couple comments that we can make. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, make them soon enough. We'll, we'll get to Yeravam II. He has, he has something to be said about him. Um, during this period, a uh, generation back, when the third generation of the house of Yehu is the, is the ruler, Yehoash is the ruler, Elisha finally dies, and on his deathbed, um, a great scene is repeated. When Eliyahu had risen to heaven, so he screams, Avi, Avi, Rechav Yisrael, Ufarashav, which is uh, another one of these famous psuki, my father, my father, the seat of the chariot of the Jewish people, you're, you're the... You're the foundation upon which we all are rallied around it. You can't imagine, hold on, you can't imagine how powerful, how influential the role of the Navi was. And since we don't have anything like it in the world today, we really literally can't imagine it. But Eliyahu in his days, like Elisha in his days, these were utterly galvanizing and inspiring figures. They were prophets and the people had guidance from them. And when the monarch, when you couldn't trust her or, or, or respect the monarchy, you always had the Navi. As Elisha lays dying and finally dies, so the king weeps the same words, Avi, Avi, Rechav, Yisrael, Ufarashav, and, um, and Elisha passes from the scene. And you have your Masorah charts. Who's the, next, who's the next in line after Elisha in the, in the Messiah? In the in, in transmitting our whole our whole uh, it's, then you have the prophets then you have Yehoiada we're about to meet who's a Kohen and a prophet in the south and Zechariah his son and Hosea and Amos and Yeshaya and Micha and Yoel and Nachum and, and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and leading down to Yirmiyahu uh, the these are no no they're not a lot of them are in the twelve but they're not only Yeho, for example Yehoiada and Zechariah don't have their own books in the in the in, in, in the Tanakh. Um, what's that? Yonah, and we said Yonah and Ovadia are not in there as well. Correct, correct, correct. It's close, but not, not a comprehensive list. Um, we see that uh, they are the repository. All the Torah goes through them. When we're learning Makos, we're learning Gemara, and really the entire, everything that surrounds it, including all of Shas and Poskim, that was all channeled through these righteous individuals. They had a divine assist because they had prophecy to retain it all and to know it all. But that, that their, their, their function was... was, was, was uh, they, they, had, they had a central function in Klal Yisrael. Go ahead. Elia Navi never died, so he's never buried. There, even though there are a couple places... There are a couple places that are traditional... Please don't talk. There are a couple places that are traditional grave sites 
for Eliyahu Navi, and like your question implies, they make no sense. Um, we just said Eliyahu Navi was buried and said this. Oh, I said, but no, when he ascended to heaven. Uh, when he ascended to heaven, he never died. He never died. Uh, uh, just in, in terms of burials, there are, you'll see, I motion. Um, you'll see, you, if you go around Eretz Yisrael, and Bezashem, maybe I'll be Zohar to guide you around Eretz Yisrael. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to guide the Kibre Tzadikim. There are many, and they're very inspiring. I took my, uh, in a day or two, is my uh, son Elisha. You know my son Elisha? Um, his bar mitzvah is coming up. Uh, his bar mitzvah was last year, and his 14th birthday is coming up. Um, but last year, as my personal bar mitzvah gift to my son, I took him and three friends of his choosing um, on, a, on a great overnight, and we did the north, and we slept outside. It was a lot of fun. Um, but we did, we covered 25, I mean, his friends, Baruch Hashem, are really into it, love fire, love learning, very smart, very cerebral kids. And we did, we, we covered 25 um, different Kibre Tzadikim all across the country. We went to Akot Svat, Tiveria. We did a very, very, very powerful substantive thing. And then, of course, I, I capped it off with a little banana boating around the, around the Kinneret. Can't hurt. Uh, make, make it fun for them, too, because they're also normal. They were also nor normal 13-year-olds. Uh, but it was really nice. It was really nice. I love going to Kibre Tzadikim, but you should know um, there's reason to be skeptical about certain traditions around some of these Kibre Tzadikim. I commented last week on the bus too on our Tiul, or a week before last week, on the Tiul, that some of them are traditions that are reason to be very skeptical. And I think with the best of intentions sometimes people, people want that their visit should be by a Kebra Bitsadi, and so they maybe they hear a rumor, and then the rumor somehow becomes the reality and the fact on the ground, and then somebody, after hearing the rumor repeatedly, puts up a sign, Eliyahu Navi, and then suddenly it becomes Eliyahu's gravesite. Whether it has any relationship with Eliyahu or not, Eliyahu's gravesite does not make sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. I agree with you. I agree with you. Unless maybe somebody, maybe it was by the place where he ascended to heavens, but even that doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Wait, 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 Say, no, I'm just saying it's impossible for it to be his grave site. Well, you're, you're absolutely, you're, you're confirming what we both yeah, said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Elon? It's funny because I've never heard someone so enthusiastic about visiting museums, but also before you said that, I've never heard anyone question the validity. Of so grave sites? Yeah, you're like on two different sides here. Like, Nobody's question. You're more enthusiastic about visiting grave sites than anyone I've ever met. Oh, I love it's it. Cool. On the other hand, you're more critical of the validity. Because I'm into Emmets. So it's so, it's so it's not a contradiction. Meaning, it's the same reason, listen. I, it is, here's, it, uh, you get me on my soapbox about tour guiding. I have a lot to say, obviously. I ran a tour guide training course. I'm very into the subject. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of tour guides who do things wrong, in my humble opinion. Because there's a professional you know, it's job, so they have to persuade you that what they're doing, whatever they're doing, is the best thing you've ever done in the world. Do you ever have a tour guide like that? Even if objectively what they're doing is not the most important, best thing that they've ever done in the world, but every day has to be the best. If everything's the best, then nothing's the best. If everything's holy, then nothing's holy. If everything, right? So certain things are objectively more important. Yerushalayim, Yerukodesh is the holiest place in the world. Don't tell me that Tel Aviv is on par with Jerusalem, as some people might, might want to make that case. It just is not. It may be this, the Ir Lelo Shena. It may be a beta plus city in the world. I can a lot about Tel Aviv, but it ain't Yerushalayim. It's not even close. So that's why we have to distinguish, and I think you can get generally excited about places that are, let's say, the Arizal identified this gravesite that, that may very, be, very well be the real thing. That's thrilling. And then have a certain skepticism about things that are just made up. I think it's a beta plus. But that, I think, links it. I haven't, I, this is not updated. I know this, these things are constantly in flux. Uh, but when I researched it, it was on par with Los Angeles, Johannesburg, Paris. I mean, a lot of. Yeah, a lot of top cities in the world. Okay, um, so when we find our, uh, we, we're going down now. We're going down to the south.
Meanwhile, and we're backing up a little bit, I just, did a, I just did a big rampage in what goes on in the north for the next several generations, the house of Yehu. Meanwhile, when we last left our anti-heroes in the south, Asalia, <laughs> the queen, has survived her husband, arranged for the assassination of her son and all of his brothers, and is now quite literally sitting pretty on the monarchy without any challengers to the throne. And she sets out to massacre anybody who might be a challenger, namely every living descendant of the house of David. And she succeeds. And she slaughters every last member of the house of David except one. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Achazia, maybe all the boys have died, have died out, but Achazia's sister uh, named Yehosheva saves her one-year-old nephew, meaning Ahaziah did have a son. Before he was assassinated, there was one surviving seed, and this nephew is named Yehoash. And this is the part, Ilan, to see if you can test your memory skills. We learned this a couple weeks ago. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's, that's the reference in history. Um, as much as you can, I'm going to try to do this as much as I can to make all of history come together. Because for history, for Chazal, history is all overlapping and folding in on itself. So we saw a terrible, terrible episode with the, with the, with the city of Nov. What happens, Barak? Summarize it nice and loud for everybody. <laughs> Remember when Shaul HaMelech went on a rampage, killing, uh, chasing David, and he was informed that David Kedon the city of Nob and Doeg, good, good Akiva, Doeg Haedomi um, had informed, he's, he, look at Pirkeiavos, he's the example of Rachilus that leads to murder. Um, his Rachilus, he conveys the fact that they had hidden David without, without telling the detail that David didn't tell him that he was fleeing from Shaul, and Shaul goes into a murderous rampage and murders 85 Kohanim. One Kohen gets away, that's Evyasar, Evyasar is his name, he manages to get away for safe refuge, HaKadosh Baruch Hu keeps tabs, as we know, on every detail in life, and that exact same scene is revisited on David's own household, as it were, David was faulted for endangering the lives, not that he killed the Kohanim, but he endangered them by hiding there, and therefore to his own seed, his house will be, as it were, wiped out, one refugee, the one-year-old Yehoash, safely gets away, his aunt Yehosheva, um, takes him and hides him in the base of Mikdash with her husband. She is married to Yehoyada, whose name I just cited because he's the next in line in the Messiah. His name is Yehoyada. He is the Kohen Gadol. He's the Gadol Ador. And he raises secretly, hiding from the queen, from the wicked queen, this infant Yehoash, or this one-year-old Yehoash, um, inside the base of Mikdash compound. And when Yehoash, do you know the story, just by curiosity? It's interesting, the stories that we know, I mean, there's a really interesting, uh, meaty stories, a lot of Mepharshim on this. Our knowledge of Tanakh is a little embarrassing, I, I, most of us, collectively. Uh, and, and good to learn these things. You should, you should fill in the blanks. I'm just giving you the, the, the basic highlights. Um, when Yehoash turns seven, which is seen as old enough to assume the responsibilities of the monarchy, Yehoyada gathers all the Kohanim and the Levim and does an official um, Meshicha. What is Meshicha? 
he is his Moshech, he anoints, anointing, that's why we call him the Mashiach. The Mashiach is the anointed one. So he officially anoints seven-year-old Yehoash as the new king of Klal Yisrael. After all, he's from the house of David. He's the rightful heir. There's a need to anoint him. I mentioned this before. Not every king has to be anointed. Who has to be anointed? You remember, Jake? Right. Remember this in the case of Shlomo, because Adoniyahu had, had, had challenged Shlomo. So anytime that there's a challenge to the monarchy, the anointing, the Meshicha, um, happens in order that there's no question. And everybody should see this as the official person. There was special... Of shemen, special oil that was used for this, uh, that was preserved later on for the anointing when it's when it occasionally came up, and that happens. With, in this case, obviously, who's contesting? Who's who's challenging the anointing of Yehoash? His grandma, his wicked grandma Asalia. Barak. And Yehoash is saved by a coin, so it's a perfect. Sure. It certainly is. It certainly. Where did they do the anointing? Both of the king and the coin gadol. On the mountain. Of. Really appropriately, you think about it. I sure did. Harazesim, with the oil, the olive. In fact, Harazesim is first called Harazesim in a different, in, in, in a Zechariah, in the last prophet Zechariah. He's the first in the Tanakh to mention it as Harazesim. Previously, the name of the mountain was in, in the Tanakh is called, appropriately enough, Haramishcha. Haramishcha, the anointing mountain. And that's indeed where the anointing ceremonially took place. And Yehoash is now coronated, he's, he's, he's made king. And I have to share the psukim with you because they're too good. It's so much better than any explanation that I can give you. If you want to look at it, it's in, it's in the second book of Malachim in the 11th chapter. Vatere. What's Asalia's reaction when she finds out that they're anointing this seven-year-old grandson of her and, and totally subverting her whole plot, the whole goal. She didn't realize the kid was kept alive. And when she finds out what's taken place and that they've anointed him king, Vatera, and she sees Vihine Hamelech, behold, Ulpan people. Vihine Hamelech, behold, uh, the king Ahmad al Hamud. Uh, he's standing on the on the um, on the pillar, Kemishpat, right, according to the to the law, because that's what new kings do, Elamelech, and all the ministers are around and they're blowing the trumpets. Vichol Am Haaretz Sameach. I highlight that all the people of the nation are happy. Why are they happy? Everybody. They're happy because justice is being done and the nation is righteous. The nation is good. All the shenanigans, all the mischief, all the conspiracy that's going on that Isalia is really committing. Isalia is a holdover from the house of Achav. They are absolutely outraged about. And finally, order is being restored. Yehoash is, is anointed. And the Pasuk says, The whole Am Haaret Sameach, Vatikah So again, they blast the, the trumpets. Vatikra Asalia Bigadad. Atalia dramatically rends her garments. Vatikra. Kesher, Kesher. And she screams. She calls out, conspiracy, conspiracy. In this context, it means conspiracy. You were in cahoots with one another, meaning you were tied together. You were, no, Keshet is rainbow. Kesher is a tie, is a knot. And you guys con you conceived of this whole conspiracy. You, 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 you plotted against me. It's a knot. On Shabbos, it's forbidden. Keshet, different word, not connected. Kesher, Kesher, she screams right before the men all gather around her and have her executed. And with that, with her death, after 15 years of, of corruption with Yehoram and Asaya and Ahaziah, 
finally the evil reign and definitively the house of Ahab comes to a dramatic uh, dramatic conclusion her house of she has her own private house of Baal worship in the south that's completely destroyed overthrown she has a Kohen, she has a Kohen a priest a Komer a priest from Avodah they dramatically bring him out have him slain why do you have why all the fanfare why all the show why that why why do these things so publicly to show to show that no in halacha, it's called the machah. It's not enough to get rid of evil. The pasuk says you burn evil out of your midst. You have to show a machah. A person who's who's a wet around, who's, a, who's who's there when a transgression is happen is happening, and they don't protest in some way, shape, or form. It's as if they did the avera. The gemara, for example, in Shabbos Lamed Gimel says by nivulpeh. What's nivulpeh? Bad speech, you know, like like half the words that you hear sometimes around the dorm. The uh, bad speech, I- immodest kind of a kind of speech, usually having to do with um, bodily functions and other such things, uh, intimacy and things. Anyway, people who use that, the pasuk <laughs> is is says that zamo yipol sham Hashem's wrath falls there, and the Gemara understands that that means that not only is the person who uses this, the the the, uh, the the foul language going to go down the tubes and be destroyed, because he's using. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes from animals is something that connects with Hashem is our capacity for speech. A person who misuses that, it's a terrible, terrible avera. And not only will he go down the tubes, so too will the shomea vishotek, the guy who hears it and remains silent without protesting. It's just as bad. If your friends like to swear and they like to use curse words and you sit there, it's as if you're using curse words. You have to somehow express your, your, your dissent. I don't agree with this. You can do this in a, you, if you feel like you're being too self-righteous and you don't know how to, how to, how to uh, disagree with them. One way you can say it is, you guys, do what you want, your life, whatever you want to do. The halacha is that somebody who, who listens quietly, passively, and doesn't protest uh, goes down the tubes too. I've just registered my protest. I'm done. I'm covered. I used to say that on hikes with certain groups of people. Uh, somehow in the, during the hikes, people had colorful language, and I said, by the way, you speak as you want. I'm not allowed to, and I have to protest. That's it. I did it. I'm covered. At which point, usually a few staff members says, that goes for me too. Right? You want to protest when something's bad, and sometimes the protest has to be definitive and public, and that there should be no confusion. We will not tolerate evil in our midst. The Kohen Gadol, Yehoyada, for the first time in history, it's not just Kohen Gadol, see, because the kid's too young to rule. Yehoash is seven, he's, he's the figurehead of the king, but he can't practically be, be the king. So Yehoyada, his, remember the, the connection, if you want to do the family tree, his, it's his aunt's husband, right? His blood aunt, we did aunts and aunts this week, right? His blood-related aunt, um, her husband is effectively the acting king, the regent is the technical term for it. Um, it's the first time that we find in history that the kahuna overlaps with the monarchy. Usually that's bad news. In Let's say more, anybody up for more current history, the separation of what they call church and state. You familiar with that subject? It was not Hanukkah per se, but part of the fallout of the Hashmonaim we're going to see is a big mistake that the Hashmonaim who are Kohanim are going to make. It's certainly part of this topic, very good, that they assume 
the later generations will assume the title king, meaning they combine two, two, two uh, crowns, and that's a terrible mistake. And we're going to comment on that. It's, it's spot on for what we're trying to express here. It's usually not a good thing. When we, let's say, go back to the days of Moshe and Aaron, the fact that a Kaddish Baruch divides as it were, the religious aspect, that's our own and the kahuna, he's the one that all the nation loves and he resolves everybody's problems. He is a figurehead in a, in a way that Moshe Rabbeinu is not. Moshe Rabbeinu is the political leader, he's the teacher of Tyra, but he's not the Kohen. And these roles are meant to be divided, and the fact that we have this combination, actually, in the case of Yoyada, it works pretty well. But he's the exception to the rule. That's an interesting question. It's not clearly stated in the 12 12 right it's not so clear a lot of it has to do with the individual and its and his ability to function so so that was that was uh, in this case um, in this case uh, Yehoyada becomes the regent effectively for um, for the whole first period seven eight years of Yehoash's rule um, as long as Yehoiada is alive, he remains uh, a very powerful force. Even when Yehoash is able to assume more responsibilities, um, his Rebbe, his uncle, remains a powerful influence in his life. And during this period, Yehoash, the Pasuk calls him a great tzaddik. He's actually likened to David Melech. What does he do? He, he initiates a lot of reforms. You know, uh, as time passes, and we're already um, over 150 years into uh, the, the first temple period, people have gotten soft and sloppy. Their needs for for for, for uh, their problems, their problems. For example, there's certain corrupt kohanim. He gets rid of them. That's very that's that's a great thing. Um, he 155 years after Shlomo had built the base of Mikdash, he does renovations. His buildings buildings get old. So Yehoash. Uh, uh, restores the base of Mikdash. He's unable, as his predecessors were similarly unable to, remove the Bamos. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a repeating refrain. Um, what was worse? The voters are in the north or the Bamos in the south? The voters are in the north. The Bamos in the south, at this point still, are not used for idolatry. They're an Isidiraisa, but they're still used to worship Hashem. That's leap years better than uh, than 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 the voters are in the north, which is yeah, which is. We'll have to just wait, won't you? Yeah, and see. So. Okay. Excellent. The um. Okay. Well, you'll just have to stay tuned, won't you? Okay. Um. Can you keep a secret? Yeah. So can I. Okay, in Diver Hayomim, we find the next chapter, Yehoyada, Kohen Gadol, Gadolador, dies. And shockingly, as one of the shockers of shocks, this righteous king, Yehoash, goes sour. He's got some corrupt advisors. Apparently, the bad blood in his family, Asalia, who, who, uh, who's, who's there, and must have, remember Asalia, there's some question about Asalia's lineage. She's either Ahab's sister, in which case she's completely Jewish, or she's his daughter, in which case she may or may not have been Jewish, but she was certainly converted. So these descendants may have had a proper conversion, but you can take the convert out of the, you know, from the Goyim, but you don't always take the Goyish out of the convert. Some of the evil stuff 
that's in her remains in her, and that's how Chazal explained. Yehoash suddenly has all this corruption that's been bottled up, and uh, and and uh, as it were, in his righteous behavior all those early years, and suddenly he just he just turns around and he builds an asherah, which is an idolatry tree, and he starts putting up psalim, which are statues. And the nation starts following because it's the king and it's a minority of the nation, but people follow in line. And there's what's in the south, and this is this is terrible. And it's not the first time. Remember, under his under his own grandfather Yehoram, this business had already begun, but Yehoash now is revamping it. And the next Gadol Hador, who's now keep track of the names. Am I still overdoing with the names? So that's why I have these chart these charts. Yehoash is king. The Kohen Gadol is Yehoyada's son Zachariah. Zechariah ben Yehoyada. Now, just a word about Zechariah. There are at least two famous Zacharias. One of them is much later. Uh, three, I said at least. At least. We got certainly Zach in the back. Um, but we got, we got uh, the, 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 the Zechariah, whose who's 14th chapter we, read, we just read on Sukkot a few weeks ago, and who has a book in the Treasar, in the 12 prophets in the, in the Tanakh, that's much later. He's the last prophet. He's, he's in the early second temple period. This is an earlier Zechariah ben Yehoyada, who is, get this, Zach, you want to get this as your, as your name forebear. You've got a very holy, righteous name. He had a very crowded resume, very big resume. He was the Kohen Gadol. He was a Navi. He was Gadol Ador, just like his father. As you find in the chart, the next in line, the next in the Messiah, right? You see his name, Yehoyada, there. On your, on your sheets and he is appalled and he won't take you really have to hear this a little bit yes that's right that's that's a less important Zachariah the two prominent most prominent Zacharias in our history at least are this Zachariah and the later prophet Zachariah and very brief story stories like this he is appalled. He, as any prophet, will not tolerate this uh, flagrant violation of Taira. And he chooses deliberately the holy day of Yom Kippur itself. And it's Yom Kippur that coincides with Shabbos to stand up to the king and to give him and the nation gathered with him public tochacha, public rebuke. And Yehoash stands right up to the prophet and under the influence of his, grand, of his dead grandmother Asalia orders the people to stone, to kill their holiest leader on the holiest day of the year, one of the most grievous, heinous crimes in all of history. It's seven Averas simultaneously, count them. You've got Ritzicha, murder, of a Kohen Gadol, who happens to be a Navi. He's the Galador, which makes him a Dayan, another sin. It's a chilul of the Beis Hamikdash. It's right there in the holy in the holy Beis Hamikdash. It's on Yom Kippur that coincides with Shabbos Kodesh. All packaged together. They're not doing well in Olam Haba. Those people. But it wasn't just Olam Haba. It's a famous scene. It's all. If you want to read more in depth, go look, look up the Gemara and Gitin. The blood of Zechariah. This is a very famous image. The blood of Zechariah ben Yehoyada lays uncovered. And miraculously, it remains there uncovered on the floor of the Chotzer in the Beis Mikdash compound for the next 238 years. We say a, we say a kina about this. The story is told on Tisha B'Av. It's one of the things we're mourning on Tisha B'Av, uh, the whole story. And if you look in the footnote in art school, for example, they tell you this whole story. If you look up this story, um, 
as it's also rendered in the Gemara and Yitin, the blood is just sitting there seething and bubbling as a sign of a Kaddish Baruch who's fury and wrath with the people who not only went against him in Avodah Zarah, but, uh, but had the chutzpah, the gall to, to murder the Navi, Kohen Gadol, Gadol Hador, who would tell them uh, that, they're, that they're sinning. Who is Josh? Yeho- Yehoash. Why is Josh a uh, name now? Why do people call people Josh? Josh is, is, is an abbreviation of Yehoshua, a different name. Oh, isn't this Josh? No. Was... No, it's Yehoash. Oh, okay. It's Yehoash. Different, different variation. Um, Yehoash had ruled... When this episode happens, it's near the end of his rule. He had ruled for 40 years, but now it all comes undone very, very quickly. Retribution comes very fast. Aram, remember Aram in the north, they're the big bad guys. Meanwhile, Aram defeats his army, they capture the king, they torture the king, uh, and they ultimately will set up two of his servants to murder him. And Yehoash falls very, very dramatically after this terrible low point in history. His son Amatsia now takes over. Some say it's Amatsia, some say his name is Amotz, and Amotz has a really famous son. Ben Amotz. I'll give you a hint. We just read his his uh, his his book for the Haftarah this last Shabbos. And I'll give you an even bigger hint. For the last few months, his has been the most common of all the Haftarahs. His is most Yeshaya ben Amotz. Some say it's the same person. That this is the father of Yeshaya. So we're already approaching the time of Yeshaya. We're we're 238 years near the you know in the midway point. 238 years before the Chorban, uh, midway through the first Temple period. <laughs> And Amatsia, who's Yehoash's son, becomes the next king for 29 years. Um, also a tzaddik like his father, initially. Who also doesn't do as badly as his father, but uh, I'll tell you his story briefly now. Go ahead, Elan. That was a question. Wait, how long was he king? 29 years. First order of business, he, he, amended, he, he finds his father's murderers and has them slain. He strengthens the borders. He then goes to battle against uh, people called Bnei Seir, that's Esau's descendants. And they've got a bunch of gods that he mistakenly brings back from battle and bows down before them. Now, what is he thinking? What is he doing? Rav Miller says this is not a Vodazara like his father did. Rather, it's just dabbling in a Vodazara. Um, it's what it is is he's failing to pers- uh, he's falling sway to the prevalent practices around him. Everybody used to go and try to appease the gods in battle, and he got influenced, and that's what he's doing. He doesn't really believe in this stuff. He believes in Hashem. I'm trying to describe this as specifically as I can because, as we see. The times are times of decline. You know, we're, we're, fi- we're finding v- increasingly flawed leaders, and I'm trying to characterize it specifically. They basically served the Shem. He was basically a Sadi, but he did these kinds of things that, I, I mean, I, I still think, I think this is the best exp- explanation we have today. You know, we have a lot of very fine people alive today as well, and sometimes we do sins that are so prevalent and widespread that we also don't think twice about them. I mean, maybe the classic example we bring by is, is, is Lashon Hara. People sometimes say, the, I don't know, you're sitting around sometimes, people start saying Lashon Hara, and good people, people who should know better, and they say, you know, what are they thinking? But the issue is, is that it's so common, they, they're not they thinking. They don't, they, I mean, they're, they're not that Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara. 
Also, are they rationalizing? This is, this is a really Lashon Aramun, this is Bento Ellis, it's not really a problem. No, it's definitely a problem. So, he fell sway to the uh, prevalent problems of the time, but he's basically otherwise a good guy. He'll even try to reunite the empire, the north and the south, ineffectively. He tries to conquer the north, doesn't work. A Navi tells him to stop. A Navi then warns him, don't even go further, Hashem's not going to be with you. Here again, he doesn't listen, and he's defeated by the northern king uh, at the time. um, Trying to make some kind of correlation. Don't worry, this north-south business is coming to an end soon enough. Uh, the confusion in, in, our, in our presentation, I'm, I'm winding down the first temple period in the next couple of days <coughs> when Amatsia in the south goes up against the north. It's against Yehoash, the grandson of Yehu, if you're keeping track. Uh, he doesn't succeed against the north. Uh, Yehoash defeats him. Um, great battle in Beit Shemesh. Anybody been to historical archaeological Beit Shemesh? It's right off the main road. Um, Later on, Yehoash comes to Jerusalem and tears down part of the wall. The north and south are actually fighting. Civil war between Jews. Um, he steals some of the treasures of the base of Mikdash. Uh, but Amatsi is not defeated, and it takes, he, he rules for another 15 years, and ultimately he's killed by his own generals in a place called Lachish. Um, yeah, the generals, the generals kill him. They're, they're trying to... The generals write... Um, L'shem Shemaim want to kill everything associated with the Vodazara, and since the king didn't quite put it down, he's associated with the Vodazara, so he dies, and then the next figure comes along. His son is 16 years old, and his name is, is he has two names. In Malachim, he's called Azariah, and Divayamim is called Uziyahu. Azariah Uziyahu. Um, and he rules for 52 years. Um, up until this point, there's no, he's, he's, um, the longest ruling king. We're going to see another, there's one king who, who sets the record. Anybody know who is the longest term as king? Menashe, right. But he's 53 years. But Azaria slash Uziah is 52 years king. Some say, well, think about the, ma- the family tree. If he's Az- Uziah, then Amotz or Amatia, who would his brother be? Yeshaya, Isaiah. Right? So that's the family tree. We're going to talk about Yeshaya, but I'm going to hold off on that for now. Now, who's Uziyahu? Uziyahu, again, sometimes called Azariah, but for simplicity, I'm just going to call him Uziyahu. Uziyahu is also called a tzaddik. Um, the major sin when his rabbi dies is he learns Torah just not as much as he used to learn. He becomes powerful. His name spreads far and wide. But because he doesn't learn Torah, see, Torah is really great. You know that? Torah is really great. You can take that from me. Uh... Torah, among other things, keeps our mitos in check. Everyday learning, hopefully, engenders a little humility in us. Without that, you can win a lot of battles and let it go to your head, and his ego is inflated. And here's the famous scene with Uziyahu. He decides as king and as this new, the house of David, I mean, power, ultimate power is, 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 a, uh, is, is a tonic is something that really can, can, can overtake a person, even an otherwise decent individual, he decides somehow that it's appropriate as king that he should go in and again blur the lines between the monarchy and the kahuna. I'm going to go in and I'm going to burn Ketiris. I'm going to take the incense. Now what's Ketiris? What, 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 what function does Ketiris have in the base, in the base of Mikdash? The Kohen burns it when? 
not just at the culmination of every cor- every korban. Who says uh, korban tamid every day? Shachris and mincha. Say korban tamid every day. It's followed by the ketores, and it's only the domain of the kohen. In fact, the Torah says in such strong terms, only the Kohen can do the Kohen service, only the lady can do the lady service. Anybody who's not in that role, a non-Kohen or non-Levi, will die for usurping uh, these, these, um, his, their, their, their uh, tasks. And Uziyahu goes, and he's, he's sincere, he wants to serve Hashem, but he wants to bring the Ketoros in the base of Mikdash. And when he enters, the Kohanim gather around him. And what are you supposed to do? You have to give reverence to the king. I mentioned this briefly. The Mishnah in, in the second chapter of Sanhedrin says, a king can't get a haircut in front of the common, in front of the masses. He can't be seen naked. Nothing denigrated. So you have a king who's sitting in your midst, taking your job. If you're a Kohan, what are you supposed to do? So they very delicately approach, uh, approach him. They try to explain his error. How do you explain an error to your parents? You know the halacha in Kibbut Ava'im? It's a similar thing. You are wrong, mom. Chas v'shalom, that's a major of error. You cannot say that line ever. Even if she's blatantly wrong, what can you do? Oh, didn't we learn? Even that, the Mechavah says one notch even more indirect. He says, you take out the appropriate book, assuming she she or he understands it, and you say, Dad, did you understand Pshat on this paragraph? And in the paragraph, it is the correct halacha. And if he indirectly figures it out for himself, you've done your job. But you can never argue with your parents. That's one that's neglected a lot. You can't argue with them, and you can't can't take them on. Um, If somebody somebody has a a Shiloh once, um, what what if your father, true case, guy... Uh, the father mistaught a halacha to guests at the Shabbos table and they were going away thinking they knew the halacha when they had it totally backwards and the son wanted to know what could I do under those circumstances and probably the best answer is don't say anything when your father is, 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 is twisting the halacha but you can after they leave run after the guests and say excuse me there must be some kind of misunderstanding here's the correct halacha and give them the sources and have them look in, into it later on in other words you can't have to correct what was mistaken but never if your father's going to find out be very very uh, careful you would respectfully say I can't do that dad you're not correcting them for being wrong but you can't do you can't go against the Torah well, it will, it's your if it leads to no, you can't be you can't be the source of the machlokas. Meaning, you can hold your ground, and sometimes you must. Um, not just by by an isidiraisa, but even an isidirabanan, or even a widely kept minhag. If your parent tells you, um, in a lot of cases, I, this is a pet topic of mine. I have an article if you want to read it called "Mamo Toivel Dishes and Other Kibbutz Abayim Dilemmas" that gets entirely into this topic. One of my favorites. Um, but it, sometimes you may, you may, you might inadvertently make your parents upset with you, but you can't argue with him. You can't say you're wrong, mom or dad. You just say I, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. Not that you're wrong. You hear the difference? If they are mochel, if they say I'd like to hear your opinion and I even welcome your dif- the difference of opinion, then then you're honoring them. So in this case, the king is not asking for their opinion. He, you know, on his own, unilaterally, is going and going to offer this Torah. The Kohanim are trying to show him his error very gently, very delicately, but he's not listening. And um, 
meanwhile, this is such a calamitous, terrible, terrible, uh, terrible thing that, that, that happens. Uziah is getting angry. Meanwhile, up in heaven, the Malachi Asharis, the administering angels, are similarly angry. Not that angels really get angry. They don't experience human emotions. But they are, as it were, angry. And they are ready. They, they ask Hashem, let's kill the king right now. Hashem takes a more moderate, compassionate role. And he says, no, I'm going to be lenient. Uh, they say, but he is no better than Koirach. Korach, who tries to usurp Moshe and Aaron's roles, you have to get rid of that. He's going to undermine the whole, um, the whole structure of Torah. And Hashem does one better. He sends an earthquake. No, wait, strike that. Hashem doesn't send an earthquake. Hashem sends the most famous, infamous earthquake of all times called the Ra'ash. In fact, it's such, a, it's such a, a, a calamitous earthquake and such a galvanizing moment. From that time on in history, they count history. How many years since the Ra'ash? Um, that's, how, that's, how, that's how definitive a time it was. Um, how definitive was this earthquake? Well, Amos the Navi opens up his book, his chazon, his vision, referring to the Ra'ash. Uh, measuring the years, you know, it's this many years since the earthquake. That's how Amos uh, describes it. Um, excuse me. He, he, no, he doesn't measure from the earthquake. He, he refers to the Rash. Yeshaya refers famously, we say it in Kedusha, Harash Hagadol. He refers to Kadosh Kadosh Kodosh, the divine chariot, the ultimate vision of Hashem's, uh, of Hashem's magnificent throne, heavenly throne. And, and one of the images that he draws from is, is this great earthquake that sh- literally shook the world, um, shook the world to its foundation. Um, Zechariah, the later Zechariah prophet, will say it's a precedent for the ultimate earthquake in the end of days. They keep saying in Israel, the forecasters, the seismologists say, you know, the big one's coming. Earthquake is very, excuse me, Israel, Eretz Israel is prone to earthquakes. There have been, there have been many, many um, infamous earthquakes in history. I'll just off the top of my head, I'll cite a few of them. Um, we know, for example, the whole place was pulverized in the year 749. Uh, that's why the first Arab dynasty, the uh, Umayyads, crumbled exa- the next year because the earthquake just destroyed everything. And that's when the Abbasids take over. 749. Um, correct. Almost everything and miraculous in the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque survived that earthquake. Right. They're, they're not even, they're about a half a century old when that happened, unfortunately. Right. The, um, the, another, another massive earthquake will take place, let's say, um, famously in 1837. Um, the city of Tzfat, the holy city of Tzfat, slides down on itself. Half the um, ancient cemetery is covered up uh, because of the landslide. And there are many such earthquakes. Anyway, this is the earthquake. Um, it's going to be this mean earthquake in the end of days, Gogu Magog. Here's an interesting instance in which secular science has something to say on the subject. There are geologists today who believe they found evidence throughout Eretz Israel in Jordan um, for this earthquake. And the dating, that, as far as geologists can date things, actually lines up more or less to the mid-First Temple period. So you can read about all about it in the International Geological Review, issue 42, the year 2000, and I can give you the exact reference there. Uh, they, they feel that they found evidence of this Ra'ash. What were we going to say? Ilan, you had something? The king... Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, the, the, exactly. I mentioned this. Did we go down yet to the Dead Sea? No. Oh, fine. You mentioned it on the way down. On the way up. On the way up. Oh, I did. I did. And I said, I said, it was um, the whole, what's called the Jordan Valley is really a result of that, of that, of the continental drift, the, the fault that the runs all up and down there, the whole thing, it's fascinating. I was going to, I can do a whole geological thing and I'm not gonna do it right now, a whole tangent, um, but I was, one time on a tour, I was, I was describing this in, in great, deep, great detail and one of my clients was listening and he got really hostile and angry at me and, and was very aggressive, very angry about all these earthquakes that take place in, in Israel and I tried to explain to him, it's not my fault. Um, I think you were. I think you were at this, at this late hour. They just. I got the joke, but you could have told me a few on I could have, and it's not at all true. But I did set it up decently. Okay, so decently, you didn't even get it. Okay. Um, the, uh, the king, meanwhile, is standing there about to offer the Katiris. And suddenly, all the Kohanim, it's a great story, all the Kohanim standing around him start to recoil in terror. And the king is looking at them, and I'm taking some literary license, I admit. He says, what, what? A big stain of tzaras suddenly, miraculously breaks out right there in the middle of his forehead. And uh, they're, of course, you know, stunned and recognize the, the, the miracle. Um, the tzaras is so grievous, is so intense with Uziyahu, that um, he becomes bedridden and um, he's incapacitated by disease for the rest of his life. And even though he survives the, 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 the whole ordeal, he is, um, he's basically sidelined and Why his son, one second, his son Yosam becomes the acting regent king uh, for, the next, uh, for, the, for the rest of his rules. Uh, in, until Uziyahu finally dies and 25-year-old Yosam assumes the mantle of kingship. He's officially king for 16 years, but he'd really been king effectively all the years that his father was incapacitated. Why did he not go to Mikvah How would Mikvah help? Mikvah doesn't cure Tzaras. Tzaras is a divine miracle. No, I know it's a divine miracle, but... All miracles are divine, that's a redundancy, but I mean, it's a miracle. No, it's a miracle, but saying... There's different kinds of tsaras. Uziyahu's tsaras was an of, of an acute nature. You couldn't go it. It killed him ultimately. It killed him. It made it made him it made him uh, a vegetable. Um, Yosam becomes king for 16 years. Um, not much to say about him. He rebuilds the upper city. He's a tzaddik. He he doesn't get rid of the vamos. Um, he has war, continuous ongoing war with the north. Um, and here's one thing that the Pasuk does say about him. Because of his father's sin, so interesting how trauma works in a person's life, his father's sin involved the base of Mikdash, and Yosam is, is not a bad person, but he avoids the base of Mikdash too much. A king has a certain, among other things, the king reads Hakel, reads the Sefer Devarim, Sefer Mishneh Torah, in the base of Mikdash, and Yosam avoids it. He's, uh, again, in modern pop, pop, pop psychobabble terms, he's traumatized by the whole event, and he never, he, he doesn't go there, and it's a problem. It's a problem because some people, some people become also alienated from the base of Mikdash, and his son, Ahaz, also has nothing to do with the base of Mikdash, so much so, so that Ahaz reverts to practicing a Vodazara. 
Uh, so Achaz is, a, is really a bad egg, one of the worst of all time, and the Gemara discusses why he didn't make it into the Mishnah about, of, of those who ha- have no uh, portion in the world to come. So that's uh, for tomorrow. I have to explain to you what happens with Achaz uh, in the south, and, but really our focus tomorrow is what goes on in the north. Tomorrow we're going to finish off the whole northern kingdom and see whatever happens. A very important, little understood uh, discussion on whatever happened to what's called the ten lost tribes. Technically we've said more, it's really nine and a half tribes. Uh, what is their fate, what happens in the north, and how that affects us till today. Ben Zerash Hashem will pick up from here.